So for the last several weeks into these sermons, I've woven in these different stories of my family when we were here 10 years ago. I've told you these stories of where we lived in a two-bedroom garage apartment near North Park Mall. I've told you about how I was put on a root beer float dietary weight gain plan, which became a problem because I tend to sweat at night. Last week, I told you about this church's influence on my marriage as we went through premarital counseling here at Grace. And this morning, one of my goals as we move through Ephesians chapter 6 is to fill in the gap of the last 10 years, what the Lord has been doing in my life, in my family, and in my profession over the last 10 years once God took us out of grace but has now brought us back. See, 10 years ago when we attended here at Grace, we were students at Dallas Seminary, and my plan was to get my THM at Dallas, to get a PhD at Dallas Seminary. My plan was for me to be a professor at Dallas Seminary and to attend Grace Bible Church for the rest of my life. I never thought that I would be a pastor here. My plan was to be a professor at Dallas Seminary, to attend Grace Bible Church for the rest of my life. That was my plan. But God, as the true boss, as the true master, had a different plan. Some of you know this story, but three days after my wife and I graduated from Dallas Seminary, Hannah gave birth to our first daughter, Chloe. And nine days after Chloe's birth, we found ourselves in the hospital with Chloe. We didn't know it at the time, but Chloe was born with a heart arrhythmia. Her heart was beating at about 300 beats a minute. And so it was really that moment more than anything else that God used in my life to kick me out of academic ministry and into church ministry because it was my daughter's heart condition that made me realize I don't need to get a PhD, I need to get a J-O-B. I need a job with insurance and an income to provide for this family that God has given to me. And God clearly worked in my life, in my family over the last 10 years. And here in Ephesians chapter six, I want you to open your Bibles as we continue really what we began last week and talking about God's order and arrangement of the household. Remember, uh, we talked last week about how um, Paul is really adopting these principles from Aristotle about how the household is to be properly ordered and arranged in the husband-wife relationship, the father-child relationship, and the master and slave relationship. But what Paul does in contrast to Aristotle is Paul really reintroduces the Lord into his rightful place in this conversation. Throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul has been telling the church in Ephesus to walk worthy of the calling to which they've been called. He's reminding them of their new position in Christ, which is given to them by grace through faith. And now in the second half of the book, he's telling them practically what this looks like in their life as they live out the gospel in how they live. And here this week, Paul gets really practical about how the gospel is worked out Again, as we saw last week in our marriage 
But this week in our parenting and in our workplace relationships, there on your outline and your worship guide, you can see three things we're going to talk about this morning. The first one is how the gospel reframes our parental relationship. The second thing is how the gospel reframes our professional relationship. And then number three on your outline, we'll talk about really the the principle, the idea here that's guiding what Paul is saying. So grab your Bibles. Let me read for you, beginning with number one on your outline, the parental relationship for the proper order and arrangement of the home. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter six. Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord For this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So again, in talking about the household codes and the proper order and arrangement of the household, here Paul now turns his attention to the second category. We saw marriage last week. Now he's talking really about parenting. And he addresses first the child. Paul's command to the child is really simple. It's very straightforward. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. The main command is that word obey. It it means to follow, to listen. Simply put, for the proper order and arrangement of the household, children are called to listen to the voice of their parents, to respond with obedience. This is all very simple and this was kind of common sense or the standard expectation in the Greco-Roman world. Notice Paul says, children, obey your parents. Notice this phrase, in the Lord. Again, Paul is reframing this entire conversation in light of the gospel, in light of their position in Christ. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. One of the ways you uh, really respond in obedience to the Lord is in your obedience to your parents. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then notice, for this is right. The word for right in this context really describes duty and responsibility. Again, for the proper order and arrangement of the household, it is the child's duty or responsibility to listen to and respond to the voice of their parents. In our household, Han and I, as we are in the middle of this parenting thing, one of the things we tell ourselves and remind ourselves of is that our goal is to teach our children to obey our voice with the goal that they will one day listen also, more importantly, to the voice of the Lord. And that's really the idea, the, 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 the concept that we see here at play. And to support this, notice what Paul does. He gives the command, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, this is your duty, this is your responsibility. But then he supports this by quoting the Old Testament there in verses two and three. Paul says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Well, what, are, what is the promise? Verse three, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So to back up what he's saying here, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, the command for children to honor their father and their mother. 
And then he says, notice that this commandment comes with a promise, really two concepts here that are promised. Number one is wellness, and number two is a long life. Paul's laying out this idea, this general principle that for children who obey their parents, they may be given, notice the word may, wellness and long life. The word for well there in verse three, that it may be well with you, really means well done or excellent. It often refers to a satisfied life, especially in the context of relationships. So children who learn to obey their parents, generally speaking, have better relationships in all of life. Let's get real practical for a second. No one really enjoys being around a spoiled little brat whether they're three or 63. And so people who learn basic obedience as little kids generally have better relationships even later in life as well. That's the first idea. The second idea Paul throws out here in verse three, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Again, we all know exceptions to what Paul is saying here, but generally speaking, children who obey their parents are also given a longer life. Again, this is somewhat common sense. I mean, children who learn to obey their parents and not play in the street or who don't play with chemicals underneath the kitchen sink, generally are going to live a longer life. Again, we all know exceptions to this rule, but this is the general idea here. The basic point we see here is that God has placed children under the authority of their parents for the proper order and arrangement of the home. And this home is important because it's only parents that can provide the wisdom, the guidance, the protection that children need. Now again, everything Paul is saying here was basically expected in the Greco-Roman world, that children obey their parents. But it's really what Paul says next in addressing the fathers that would have been a little more surprising. Because notice what he says in verse 4. He says, fathers, first of all. This is not meant to minimize the role of the mother, but it's really meant to show the importance of the role of the father in the home for the proper order and arrangement. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul commands fathers for the proper order and arrangement of the home, two things, what not to do and then what to do. On the negative, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And this idea, this concept really involves both words and actions as fathers. We have to be mindful of this. That the way we speak to our children, the way we behave to our children should not include, you know, harsh, insulting words or unreasonable demands for perfection and performance. These are things that provoke our children to anger. It also, on the other hand, by the way, doesn't mean that we have to give our children everything they want, which is a temptation we face in our society today. I love what Dr. Tony Evans says here 
He says the mark of an authentic parent is that they are not out to please the child. They are out to do what's best for the child. And if a parent pleases their child all the time, then the child is the parent. And we see that a lot today, that temptation today, where uh, it appears as though sometimes the children are running the household. The inmates are running the asylum. (laughs) It's not the way to go. So Paul says, listen, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but notice what he says to do positively, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but instead bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The focus of the fathers is to bring their children up, to disciple them, if you will, to nurture them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word for discipline specifically refers to behavior. And the word instruction focuses more on verbal counsel. So in word and in deed, the fathers are to be involved in the household discipling their kids, speaking the gospel to their children. And also, practically speaking, laying out boundaries and expectations for them to obey. Man, this issue of parenting is is vitally important for us. Uh, Our culture is rapidly changing, and the pressures on our kids and on us as parents is only increasing. When I think about the extracurriculars that are placed on kids today compared to when I was a kid, it's staggering the amount of pressure that is placed on children. And then as parents, we you know, try to do everything we can to make our kids successful in life and to put them on the easiest path possible. And there's a ton of pressure as parents as well. I love what Dr. Billy Graham said when he was asked towards the end of his ministry, towards the end of his life, as he reflected back, he was once asked if he had any regrets. Listen to what he said. He said, although I have much to be grateful for as I look back over my life, I also have many regrets. I have failed many times and I would do many things differently. For one thing, I would speak less and study more and I would spend more time with my family. Here's a man who found fame, Christian fame, more than anyone has ever seen And yet, looking back on his life, he says, you know, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. Listen, for those of you in this room who are parents or grandparents, you know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. There's nothing in your life, no job, no paycheck, nothing on your phone that is is more important than that child God has entrusted to you. God has placed this child or these children in your life to nurture them in the ways and the discipline, the instruction of the Lord. Don't get distracted from that. So after Chloe was born and God kicked me out of academic ministry and into church ministry, we moved to Oklahoma where I served in my first church as a youth pastor. So I went from an aspiring PhD student and professor to a youth pastor. That's about the same thing, right? It's kind of in the same ballpark. I served as a youth pastor at one church and then I moved to another church in Oklahoma, also in Oklahoma as an associate pastor. And it was there in Oklahoma that my second child, Clara, was born. Um, Now, Chloe, my firstborn, and Clara are very different 
children. Because when Chloe was born, because of that heart arrhythmia she was born with, our doctors here told us basically we can't let her cry. Uh, We were told, you know, if she cries too much, it'll send her heart back into an arrhythmia. And so basically we had to do everything we could to just calm her down and to nourish her and protect her so her heart doesn't go into arrhythmia. We had all of these theories as parents, you know, sleep schedules and strict dietary restrictions that we were going to enter into parenting with, but all of that went out of the window with Chloe. So then in Oklahoma... When Clara was born, we began to reintroduce some of those parenting theories we had heard. And so we tried to put Clara more on a sleep schedule and you know, uh, fed her more healthy food and all of this stuff. So we had very different parenting theories between Chloe and Clara. Then when we moved to Wyoming, God gave us a boy. A Wyoming boy, that's like double masculinity. That's a whole different theory of parenting. It reminds me of a quote by the man named John Wilmot, the Earl of Rochester, who said this. He said, before I was married, I had three theories about raising children. Now I have three children and no theories. (laughs) And truly, that's how I feel as I'm trying to navigate as a father of how to nurture these children and bring them up in the fear and the instruction of the Lord, all with different personalities, It's challenging. It takes a lot of wisdom. And likewise, as we turn our attention to number two on your outline, it takes a lot of wisdom to navigate through our professional relationships. What it is to live out the gospel in the workplace often takes an incredible amount of wisdom. And so let's look at number two on your outline as Paul addresses now that third segment of the household. He addressed Husband and wife, father and child, now he addresses master and slave. Before we turn our attention to the details, let's talk about the context for just a second. Because when we begin to read these verses of masters and slaves, our minds typically go to American slavery. And while slavery in the Roman context and slavery in our country's context had similarities, they were also very different. Uh, For example, in the Roman world, uh, slavery, uh, some scholars estimate that a third of the population was in slavery. The source of slavery in many ways was often prisoners of war and it wasn't based primarily on race or ethnicity. Um, Slaves in the Greco-Roman world had a reasonable reason to believe that they would one day have freedom. They could work and earn money towards buying that freedom. And uh, many slaves in the Greco-Roman world worked in uh, very respected positions like doctors and teachers and writers. And so when we enter into these verses, I don't want you to have in your minds American slavery. Now, both forms of slavery were wrong, sinful, and that they involved the ownership of another human being but they're not exactly the same thing. And many scholars you know, have tried to wrestle through, okay, how do these verses apply to us today? Because we don't live in that context. And so many scholars have thrown out perhaps the closest application of what Paul is saying here is more contractual labor, you know, if you're a ranch hand or something, um, or if you work in the military. 
but because God has called me to be a pastor and not a professor, then what we're going to do is talk about how these verses apply very generally to us as employer and employee, all right? So let's jump in and see what Paul says here to the master and to the slave as it applies to us as an employer, employee. Notice Ephesians 6, starting in verse 5. Paul says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Let's pause right there. Again, addressing kind of this third segment of the household, marriage, parenting, now masters and slaves, Paul turns his attention first to the slave. And he says really what was culturally expected. He says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And again, the word obey really means obey, follow, listen to, do what you're told. So for us in a working context as the employee, one of the ways we apply this passage is simply to, to do what our bosses tell us to do, to be a good employee. And then what Paul does next is he really gives six major characteristics that he wants to see in these slaves who are obeying their earthly masters. Let's just quickly go through those six ideas, six attitudes of obedience that Paul lays out here. Number one, notice what he says there in verse five, slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Both of these words really describe an attitude of respect, of deep respect. Paul is calling slaves in that context, and I believe the Holy Spirit in our context is telling us as employees to serve our boss with an attitude of deep respect. The second attitude we see here, at the end of verse five, Paul says, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart. Be obedient in the sincerity of your heart. This really describes an innocence and a purity in your motivation, in your motive. To serve your boss in sincerity of heart with innocence and purity, not succumbing to scheming and deceit in order to try to get your way. The third attitude Paul lays out here, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, then notice, as to Christ at the end of verse five. Paul knows that these Christian slaves have given their allegiance to Jesus as their ultimate Lord. And so they're to serve, they're to obey their boss in service to Christ himself. That's the third attitude. The fourth attitude we see in verse six Paul describes this obedience for the proper order and arrangement of the household and he tells the slaves to obey their boss. Notice verse six, not by way of eye service as men pleasers or not serving to be seen. Not serving only when the boss is watching but really even when he's absent. This is a great reminder to us in kind of a COVID world where many people began working at home, right? 
Your boss is no longer looking over your shoulder, making sure you're actually working all the hours. This is a great reminder to serve, not only when we're being watched, but all the time. The fifth attitude Paul lays out here, also in verse 6, he says, as slaves of Christ, as slaves of Christ. Again, ultimately, our ultimate boss, our ultimate authority is not our human leader, but the Lord Jesus himself. And then the sixth and final attitude we see here, notice the end of verse 6 and verse 7, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, rendering service as to the Lord and not to men. Here the idea of rendering uh, with a good heart or wholeheartedly, obeying you know, our human boss with a good positive attitude, as hard as that might be at times. So here are six attitudes you could say that Paul wants to see in slaves as they serve their earthly masters. But then notice why. I love Paul always gives the reason why. Verse 8. Why should this obedience be there? Verse 8. Because we know that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So Paul says, listen, whether you're slave or free, it doesn't matter. When you serve your boss, you're ultimately serving the Lord. And even if your boss doesn't see the things you do, even if your boss doesn't know the the purity, the intentions of your heart, the Lord does. Your true master does. He sees from heaven everything you do. And he will reward you accordingly. I love what Paul does. He reminds us ultimately, who we're serving. That we serve not for the paycheck, but I hope we serve so that one day we might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul really gives the church there in Ephesus that end times perspective that should influence even the mundane things of their life. So that's Paul's command to the slave. But again, surprisingly, what we'll see next is what Paul says to the master, to the one in charge. Verse 9, he says, And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening. Why? Knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. This is where things would have taken the unexpected turn in the Greco-Roman world. It was expected that slaves would obey their masters. It was unexpected that masters would do the same things, as Paul says here, towards their slaves. That the same attitudes Paul describes and he wants to see instilled in the slaves there in the Greco-Roman world, Paul also wants to see those attitudes also in the masters themselves. Why? Because you both serve the one true master. Even the earthly master ultimately is not the one in charge. And with the one true master, there is no partiality. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. So this is 
Ephesians 6, 1 through 9. Again, continuing really the discussion we saw last week, Paul lays out in really straightforward commands what it looks like for our faith to be lived out in our marriages, in our parenting, and in the workplace. As we look now at number three on your outline, I kind of want to get to the motivation behind this. What's the, really the principle at play here in what Paul is saying? Let's think about this for just a few minutes. Uh, see, like I told you in the, it, last week, Paul was not the first person to talk about these household codes. Paul was not the first person to talk about the proper order and arrangement of the household in the marital context, in the parenting context, in the working context. This really all came from Aristotle. Aristotle in his work politics really was the one who laid out this idea. But what the apostle Paul does here that's brilliant is he takes these cultural concepts, these cultural expectations and norms, what everybody would have assumed to be true. This is the way you live life. This is how things are properly ordered and arranged. What Paul does is he takes this and then he introduces the gospel into it. And some of these expectations that would have been present in the Greco-Roman world Paul now redirects and reframes in light of our position in Christ. In fact, what I want you to do for your one thing this week is I want you to see exactly what Paul is doing. As he lays out these concepts, what I want you to do is I want you to reread Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9, this household code section, and I want you to take note of the phrases, as to the Lord, in the Lord, as to Christ, and similar phrases. Because what Paul is doing is he's taking these cultural norms and the patterns of behavior that would have been expected from everyone, and yet he introduces the gospel back into the conversation. He's reminding the church in Ephesus of how their position in Christ should be reflected in their marriages, in their parenting, in their workplace. He really gets down to the nitty-gritty details and where the rubber meets the road and how the gospel lives itself out in the very mundane things of our life. He really reintroduces the gospel back into the conversation. And I think on this Reformation Sunday, as Protestant churches around the world are reminded of the great work of the Reformers of bringing the gospel back into the conversation, I think we need to be reminded of that today. Because likewise, just like in the context of the Greco-Roman world, we, I think, are being tempted to take some cues from our culture about what it is to be married, about what it is to raise children in this world, about what it is to live out our faith or not live out our faith in the workplace. I don't think it's any surprise to anybody in this room that these three areas that Paul identifies here are under attack today. That we're being challenged culturally of truly what it is. What is marriage? What is relationship between father and child or mother and child and what is it to to live in the workplace all of these ideas are being challenged in our very real tangible life today are they not 
And likewise, what we need to see here in this passage and in our own life is how the gospel of Jesus, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, needs to be reintroduced as the center of this conversation. Again, Aristotle taught that if you want society to change, it starts with the household. But what Paul does here and says, listen, if you want the household to change, it starts with the gospel. If you're going to change the household, you have to introduce the gospel. And that's the only real way that any type of transformative change is going to take place. I love what Dr. Honer says in his commentary on this point. I want you to listen to this. Dr. Honer says this, Christianity's emphasis has always been on the transformation of individuals who will in turn influence society, not the transformation of society which will then transform individuals. Let me say this again. Christianity's emphasis has always been on the transformation of individuals who will in turn influence society, not the transformation of society, which will then transform individuals. The reason I'm making a big deal about this is because as we see our world and our culture continue to crumble, we're crazy if we think we can fix spiritual problems with human solutions, governmental solutions, societal solutions. It's not gonna work ever. The only way that you're truly gonna transform people who will transform the household, who will transform the world is through the gospel of Jesus. I'm not saying politics or things are unimportant, but if it's void of the gospel, we're, we're fighting a losing battle. This is the only message that's truly gonna take people from death to life. And the challenge of this text is how does this message of Jesus' death and resurrection and our position in Christ live itself out in our marriage, in our parenting, in our workplace. Listen, uh, after Chloe was born here in Dallas and Clara was born in Oklahoma, Judah was born in Wyoming, um, looking back on these last 10 years that I've hopefully filled in the gap a little bit for you, what we've been doing the last 10 years, I'm continually in awe that God has been writing this story ultimately to bring me back here to Grace Bible Church. Not as a professor, but as your pastor. And I'm incredibly grateful to the Lord for that. Um, I've not been perfect along the way. My wife knows that, my children know that. Um, but looking back as I've studied this passage this week, I can't help but just be in awe at the Lord's plan. And what I hope you see in this passage as we looked at Ephesians chapter six and kind of the illustration of my life is that uh, what God has done for me, he can do for you. Uh, we just have to be reminded of his centerpiece, the center place that he has to play in our life, that he truly is the true boss. He gets to call the shots. And even in the midst of a very difficult world, it's our role, it's our place. What we have to do is simply trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your goodness, your grace, your mercy. And Father, we come to you uh, confessing first and foremost, it's, it's tough. It's a challenge. Uh, 
for our faith to be lived out in our marriage, in our parenting, in our workplace. Father, we confess the constant temptations and struggles and things we wrestle through each and every day. This is only made more difficult as our culture, as our world is getting more and more skewed. And so help us, Father, to see from your word what it is to have a godly household, to have things properly ordered and arranged, not for our glory, but for yours. Father, help us as the people of God to trust in the power of the gospel. Uh, Father, forgive us when we turn to the wrong people, to the wrong places to fix the problems that we have caused. Help us continually to turn to you, to believe in the power of Jesus' death and resurrection that takes people from death to life, that transforms marriages, that transforms our parenting relationships, that transforms how we live and how we conduct business in the workplace. God, I pray, God, I pray that our lives, even in the very mundane things, would be a testimony to your grace, to your power, to your providence. I ask this for myself and for each one here, God, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.